1: Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Beton and Noam Weisman for the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked Wandering Jews as they tackle topics and uncomfortable questions about Israel, Judaism, and Zionism that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. listen to Wandering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wandering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of open door media.
2: Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.
3: They tried to colonize us, tried to genocide us, yet we're still here. With the tongue unbroken. We are getting started. Thankful that you are here. It's a good day to be shingit. It's a good day to be indigenous. It's a good day to be whoever you are. Uh, just because someone is... Yumming something up doesn't mean that you have to not like it. Uh, I know sometimes it's instinctual to get mad if it doesn't include you if you are the default thing these days, but that's okay. It's okay. We were talking in Tlingit class the other day about just how to talk some trash, and uh, one time someone sent me a text, and it said, Yeah, <laughs> Uh, I heard that the sun shines through your coffee. And I got really, I got mad because I like my coffee pretty dark. So I said, Let's fight. So, whatever you're up to, I hope you are having a good time. I hope that things are going your way. And that if you're having a tough time, that you're getting through it. The people are helping. You're finding help. You're helping others. It's loving. That's what does not The world just spins around. Whatever you put out there, it does come back your way. So today we're going to hop in our time machine, roll it back about 11 months. Uh, This time machine is not some fancy, fancy car with doors that open like wings and a big old thing built on the back. Our time machine's probably a 1975 Ford Fairlane station wagon with baby moccasins hanging from the rearview mirror, a quarter that somehow stopped uh, an exhaust leak, and uh, a car that, and when it gets real cold, there's icicles dangling off the engine, and no, it's just a mystery how it keeps running, but it does. So about a year ago, we were we had an Indigenous Peoples Day event at the University of Alaska Southeast, and we had wonderful participants, so I thought we would listen to their voices today as you are hopefully gearing up for Indigenous Peoples events in the year 2022. There are a lot of holidays and events for colonizers, so let's beef up those events for Indigenous Peoples, and let's figure out how to... Indigenize, incorporate, recognize, and protect indigenous peoples. It's time for the violence against indigenous peoples and especially against indigenous women to end. It's also time for people to stop acting like they know our histories and acting like they know our stories when they don't even listen to us. But with that, we're going to just roll right into this. It's going to be a bit of a long episode you're probably in for about 100 minutes total, so buckle your seatbelts in this res ride as we jump back about 11 months and enjoy this conversation. We'll be back to check in at the end and to uh, take us to a couple commercial breaks. going to cheese your A-E-T-E. It's the listening that keeps this thing going. I really appreciate it. Here's our conversation with wonderful, influential Game changing human beings. Kane ya kuhi kaya, to cut you on. I'll shak a tea. ani kok aya yi cut ye ani oa. Shkut a yi do Ka to cla oa heiderberg Wasa akh tu yak a yi ki, she cut coo yagi. Ye ow, ach tuasu goo, sugoo yin yin a Wasa, ach tuasu goo, has duk eit aya gartusa ache. Yea, konachoi has ous, ousu coo. Data tina sakaya tea. Prashikat coo, kegachitzini. A joya kehayati. Ye ow, a chay de hin ho on behalf of the university of alaska southeast uh, particular alaska native languages program i want to welcome you all on this indigenous people's day Uh, it's such a wonderful day we didn't even send our kids to school we said you all stay home just be indigenous uh but then we didn't realize that There was actually school today for the kids. So um, here we are. But uh, it's such a wonderful day to spend together visiting uh, about Indigenous excellence. And the focus here is on the future of Indigenous language revitalization. So I reached out to some of my uh, beloved and wonderful colleagues to see if they would just have a conversation with us here. We typically have a class going on at this time called Foundations of Indigenous Language Education. Uh, that class uh, is in existence, in large part due to a program started by the Sea Alaska Heritage Institute, is what it's called, our language pathway, with the goal of increasing the number of teachers of Alaska Native languages, uh, and looking into teacher certification, teacher licensure and eventually a Master of Arts in Teaching Indigenous Languages. So with us today, we have uh, Larry Kimura calling in from Hawaii. Uh, Larry was a teacher of mine when I was in a PhD program. And he was our, uh, we stayed at Larry's house and we just were really fortunate to have time with him and to visit and to get tutoring in our Hawaiian and also get tutoring in our advocacy for language revitalization. I just love and admire Larry and all the work that he's done. We also have Leslie Harper coming to us from Inishinabeani from Ojibwe country. Uh, and I'm very, very fortunate to to know her to be able to work with her in her advocacy work at a national level with the National Coalition on Native American Language Schools and Programs. And also uh, visiting with her reminds me of my times when I was attending the University of Minnesota and uh, learning a lot from Anishinaabe people that I I became friends with down there. We also have Michael D'Angeli, who's who's here with us, uh, calling from British Columbia and she does wonderful amazing work with the simshan language Smelgach, uh, and also with indigenous arts both performative arts dancing uh, and also visual arts as well uh, we also have calling from denina ani joel isaac uh, an incredible language teacher scholar and also uh, is really leading the way with a lot of conversations on compacting indigenous education and what could be done to increase indigenous control of education. And then we have Roy Mitchell who's with us as well, who's a research analyst for the Alaska Native Language Preservation and Advisory Council. And my experiences with Roy go back to the early 2000s when he was working in Singitani and really helping us to uh formalize a lot of our procedures for moving into immersion environments and really trying to privilege our indigenous languages uh, and this is the panel um i think at this time i'll see if our chancellor karen Carey would like to say any welcoming remarks on behalf of her office at uas thank you Hune. isn't this a
4: glorious day we finally get to celebrate our indigenous peoples And I am so thrilled about that. And I am really looking forward to this panel this afternoon. As you know, HUNE has been working tirelessly on Alaska Native languages here in Southeast Alaska. And the number of students that are engaged in our programs has just skyrocketed. And we feel just so thankful that we are helping to save the languages. So I'm looking forward to this panel. Thank you all all of you for attending. It's great to see everybody. I wish we could be in person, but maybe someday soon we will be.
3: So Hunay, I'll turn it back over to you, but thank you so much for arranging this and and putting it on. Really appreciate it. And I'd like to thank all of the uh, Alaska Native faculty at UAS who collaborated and figured out what kinds of activities we could be doing for Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, Wherever you're at, I hope you are doing some good stuff for indigenous peoples. And to start, let's go around, and in a couple minutes, if you could please just say hello, introduce yourself, and give an opening statement about the future of language revitalization, uh, and then we'll move into our topics. So starting with Larry.
4: Hi. Aloha no kakou mahalo e kunaing. On our Indigenous uh, Peoples' Day, I guess it's called now. And um, here in Hawaii, we were reminded uh, this morning by our colleague, uh, Dr. Pila Wilson, uh, that um, Hawaii was probably not, uh, I mean, um, how do I say... <laughs> upon by the outside world, um, by Captain uh, James Cook, of course, from England, L- London, England, and, and uh, that was less uh, than uh, under 300 years ago, but for some other Indigenous peoples, maybe it was much uh, longer, and so we're kind of fresh, <laughs> as supposedly Come upon, I hate to use the word discovered because we discovered them too at the same time. So, anyway, I am an associate professor here at the College of Hawaiian Language that was established back in 1997 at the uh, University of Hawaii at the Hilo campus on the island of Hawaii where we have our active volcano going on right now. We had a big earthquake the other day, just yesterday. Not from Alaska, but right here from our island on Hawaii in Pa'u uh, District, and so that's my two minutes.
5: Thank you very much. Mahalo nui, and Leslie. <laughs> Ojibwe, Omasa, uh, King, Indian, Omasa, Asian. I'm Leslie Harper. I am Ojibwe. I'm from Ojibwe, Waqing, Ojibwe country, here in the Great Lakes region in the you know center of this continent. Uh, um, located here. On my homelands, my Ojibwe, where my Ojibwe relatives have been for quite a long time, and uh, where we remain. And um, I'm from the Leech Lake Nation, and that's located within Minnesota. Kune is somewhat familiar with Minnesota, uh, has spent some time out here, so that's really a nice connection, too. I am a grassroots uh, Native American languages revitalizer, and we'll get into that some more up the road. We can talk a little bit more about what we did here. Um, I'm just really happy and really grateful that you folks invited me in today because this is energizing. Uh, This is reciprocal. I get a lot of energy from listening to the other folks, too. Miigwech. Miigwech.
3: And uh, Mikeel.
6: Anasar khat nisnism sum the newsum duai uh what amadi khugita grand what wat go lakhubum cemshan gua lakhubum cemshan de rozago aluhot kagorio i will huks kasum da quasum asayat wan my name is sum uh, shotam newsum and i am from matlakala alaska and i'm living here on the other part of our traditional territory that um, the colonial border cuts through, which is uh, by its name, known by its name, Terrace British Columbia, but it's our traditional territory. And I said that it really just um, fills my heart together with all of you here today. And in terms of a statement on the future of Indigenous languages, I um, I would say that I would love for some of this conversation to talk about um what the pandemic has uh done to our language revitalization efforts for for us um simshan people the border is a huge issue this colonial border i've been i've been fighting to stay in british columbia to continue my uh somalia revitalization work i'm a, a adjunct professor in the somalia fluency program where i just finished teaching uh, fourth-year Somalia online um, for a year with our elders. We had um, four elders online and one linguist online with all of our students as I was teaching, and we've just seen it flourish in all of these incredible, beautiful ways um, in that people have gone inwards. Um, I think that isolation does that for everybody, but for many, it led to their path of making a, a clear decision and dedicating their time to um, learning our people's language. And um, a group that, that I helped um, to found, uh, one of the founders of is Raising Some Aliyah, which is a nursery rhyme group in some Aliyah that focuses on essentially this, this type of circle time experience um, that little ones have with their caregivers, but all in our language. And um, i just like that was born out of the pandemic. It was born out of well, also my my motherhood. My my baby was four months old at the time that the first lockdown happened, and um, all of the support system went out from underneath all of us. And um, it's just it's actually been a blessing the way that it's it's heightened our efforts in many ways and made them more accessible. So that's what I have on my goal, my heart. Oh, I have to sit you some.
7: Oh, excellent. And uh, Joel. Do kidly Tareshdish, uh, Fedora Calendar Pennington Shachida, Sharon Isaac Shunta, Dave Isaac Stukta, Denina Tlek Ayish Shiji, Gashtana Joel Isaac Shiji, Denina Eshlan Sheet, Kinai Shigu Shakaya Kalanda, and Heli. So I just um, start off, I wanted to. Uh, it's a respectful way of asking permission to speak and acknowledging everybody else in the room. And, um, starting off with my grandmother, uh, her name is from our calendar Pennington. Um, my mother's name is Sharon Isaac. My dad's name is David Isaac. My uh, Denina or Denina name is which means salmon skin. And my English name is Joel Isaac. I, I live here in Kenai, um, which is Denina lands. And, uh, going to say thank you very much for for having me today with you all um the the future of language revitalization um i think that my my kind of quick thoughts on that are that the time is now um it's it's been that way for for quite a while but we've reached a critical mass um phase and i think it's time for uh we have the the energy and the support to take some very big steps. And that's made possible by lots of people working really hard. Um, and there's some big steps we have to take in tandem as Indigenous people. But each one of our our language groups also I think is um, is at a stage where we're ready to to take some, some pretty big steps. Um, and so that's to me that's where like the future the immediate future for language revitalization is at is it's it's an action we're in an action time um and that's us as a collective but also as an individual i'm a Deneina language learner and um just me going through that journey uh, starting to do phases where i'm like rather than thinking about stuff in english i'm thinking about it in Deneina, and how would i say what i in my head hour out loud what i'm seeing and experiencing so those are i think that's um an example of kind of like little steps that are pretty big. They feel really big, but then there's also some of those community big steps that we have to take together. So, uh, Janan, for for having me.
8: Janan and Roy. Good to see you. How should I you had to a late half in a Roy Mitchell. You had to a sack. Yes, not had city. That's not a yacht. Jwan to Irish ka Jewish Dutch Han a Anchorage. Yeah, had yet Vanga ka new Petun pilak california miyo google duanga california and uh, alaska mon 1976 me uh lisap toana karinak new Petun, suli um um koyakan um wang mapak uh inusuru uh encourage me that when iusuru me Saw me me. Uh, my name is Roy Mitchell. I have uh, i wasn't born in Alaska, but I've lived here most of my life. I moved up at the age of 17, among other things, to study Inupiaq language at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, or as it was called then, the University of Alaska. Uh, right. And I've been a student of Alaska Native Languages ever since. Uh, and um, we'll talk about specifics of things later, uh, but I wanted to say as far as broad overview future of language revitalization. I, I am both pessimistic and optimistic. The pessimism is if we look at the broad demographics of numbers of speakers, numbers of speakers is going down um, across the board. Um, and I'm also optimistic because within these broad declines, we also have, i gonna move my hand over here, I guess. We also have small ways in which numbers, there were new speakers coming to be uh new second language speakers and now some new first language speakers so uh i i have uh some optimism uh on the inside and some optimism uh sprinkles on the outside of my
3: pessimism Uh, we're back in the now folks we're gonna check out some ads and a little break here then we'll go back to the past the long ago days What's happening, baby? This colonization shit got you down. You gotta get on this decolonization groove. Yeah! It's time for language revitalization all across North America. The land of the language coming back into the hands of future generations where it all belongs. Rise up and have your voices be heard. Defeat all the colonial forces that try to hold you down.
0: Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.
3: So thinking of my role as, as I'm just going to facilitate this panel. So I want to listen to you folks. And I'm going to ask you a few questions. And I guess we'll start with, with this. One is one time I went into the office of uh, Keiki Kavaea, And I said, I, wanna, I need to meet. We got to talk about this PhD thing I'm trying to do. And so I went into her office and she had a desk. And then she had some couches. And she said, are we going to meet? Or are we going to talk story? And I'm hoping we're going to do just mostly just kind of talk story. So I, I hope as panelists, you all are feeling relaxed and welcome. If if we could do things in a better way these days, we would have you to our community. We would feed you, we would love you up. We would bring out songs and dances in your honor. Uh, but the colonial side of things is we have uh, now 70 minutes to go through what I hope we're gonna try and hit four kind of topics. Um, and so it means we, we can't uh, totally relax. We gotta stay a little bit confined, but whatever happens, happens. So uh, in the same order we just went in, uh, please share your experiences and language revitalization and your current areas of focus. Uh, starting with Larry. I have two minutes again. That's
4: a big question. Uh, I'll give you five whole minutes, but if you need to take longer take <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. I don't want to take up other people's time. We all have to share. So, uh, well, you know, uh, basically uh, we were teaching Hawaiian as a course in, uh, in Hawaii because of our history being an independent country. It's a kingdom. And when the United States overthrew our kingdom. And we went into uh, becoming a territory. And I think Alaska beat us out and becoming the 49th state. We became the 50th state in 1959. So uh, Hawaiian was language was being taught at our University of Hawaii very early on in the arts and sciences program established in 1919. And so, and that was because we, in our territorial government, we still had uh, representatives from the kingdom and they were very much uh, concerned. Uh, Why is it that we're having uh, uh, Greek, uh, Latin, German, and French and not Hawaiian? So that was started back in 1921. However, our language was not uh, taken seriously until we nineteen, maybe nineteen, uh, late nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, when uh, we recognized we had less than maybe two thousand uh, native speakers, mostly all, of course, in their senior years, and this is a familiar story with many places, and we needed to bring our language back into the homes with our children. And the closest we could get to that was the establishment of the Ahapunanaleo schools, which we were in touch with, with our cousins in New Zealand, the Maori people. They started in 82, we started in 83. And uh, this is what uh, has linked us as participants. uh, I, myself, This is my 50th year teaching at the University of Hawaii System, since 1971. Thank you, Pune. Thank you, Leslie. (laughs) And so when you said, uh, what's, you know, my gosh, uh, but what's important in Hawaii is that connecting to our community as fast as we could and working uh, with the, the children, the youngest we could get to was, uh, of course, two and a half years to three years old. We also have since established a uh, one-two only currently. Very expensive to do a infant toddler from, say, uh, you know, uh, nine weeks old. And now we're taking we've taken them more like I think more like uh, eight months old because that requires a little bit more uh, personnel and uh, and uh, you know. Uh, all of those other requirements, uh, physical requirements besides personnel requirements. But anyway, uh, we the the uh, the ideal for us in Hawaii was working together uh, at the at the uh, university level or tertiary level down into right to the very beginning at the earliest we could get to in preschool age. Of course, I mentioned also infant toddler. Now, early early childhood education is becoming very important, not just for um, of course educational purposes, but uh, what our country is going through right now with this COVID and uh, and the mindset of our, our our leaders about the importance of education and the soon uh, the sooner the better. Uh, so so fortunately, we pursued an educational program uh, rather than just a daycare or a babysitting kind of program because we wanted to reestablish our language as the medium of instruction in formal education. And that's how it started back from, uh, well, we got established in 83 and our first schools, 84, 85. And then by 1987, we got into the Department of Education in the public school system in in a program that is still being called the Hawaiian Immersion Program, but we like to call it a Hawaiian medium. And we have right now uh, over 20, 26 sites right now, not all of them complete K to 12, but we have six K to 12 sites. And the rest are uh, school within a school uh, and, and the main challenges we have right now is just having enough teachers the enrollment has steadily increased so uh, we know that over this period of years that our program has um, become um, successful enough in, in the area of the standard of, of education as well in the standards of what is foremost, which is the bringing uh, bringing life back to our language and its connection to our people as a Hawaiian ident- identified people. So we, um, um, as as Kune knows, we have established, of course, our our, our little program from a uh, just a program in the arts and sciences now into course, our bachelor's and our, P- our master's and PhD programs. Of course, we also are involved with of uh, teacher training for Hawaiian immersion, what, Hawaiian medium, I should say, which is becoming very, very important. And we have also a Hawaiian language center that helps to uh, maintain, um, uh, uh, create curriculum material to uh, support all of this. And then getting enough uh, fluency going within our adult population that are producing our new generation of children and producing now native-speaking children from the home and into the system that we've established through the educational programs from K to K twenty. Uh, we'd like to say P twenty preschool to twenty up to uh, college. So. Um, there are many uh, challenges of course, that are still facing us in we re- not reclaiming but more like revitalizing, bringing more life into our language, and that would be in an area of of getting the, in what we're focusing, one of the areas we're focusing in is uh, what we're called the sciences. Uh, Hawaii has some unique um, um, possibilities in using language more in this area of science. So that's kind of a brief update. I don't know if that was your question, but I tried to do that very quickly.
5: Mai loa, mahalo. Mahalo ah, nui. Leslie. Anine. Uh, um, again, trying to be brief with this, do you have room to our other folks too? Um, you know, experiences in language revitalization where um, I'm at in Ojibwe country. Uh, we, too, have this border that crosses our land, right? We are in, you know, we've got our relatives on the America side and the Canada side of this border that crossed us. Um, we're spread out over a pretty large range of of this land. Um, so there's a lot of Ojibwe folks and a lot of our related tribes out here. Um, and we... Some of us live more closely together, but we're, we can be, you know, a day away from folks, two days away from folks, you know, um, depending on which end of, which end of Ojibwe country we travel from. So just a quick frame up, um, I was, I was born, story's not going to be that long, but I kind of started to understand, um, my own perspective on some of this stuff. When I looked at the community that, that raised me up, um, the, the era of self-determination coming from the U S Congress, you know, signing that law into place, um, throughout the 1970s and, um, our home community folks saying, Oh, this self-determination thing. Now we're going to be able to run our own educational programs, our own health programs, you know, kind of get that, that, middleman out of the way let's see you know what the native communities really can do with that and so our communities my my folks my aunties and uncles my parents generation they were busy putting together plans to operate our educational systems from our perspective in in our reservation in our communities And, you know, this was kind of a new idea when this first came out in the late 1970s, instead of just being, you know, the government, the Bureau of Indian Affairs runs these schools, or you go to the public school that's run by the state of Minnesota, or Wisconsin, you know, this was all of a sudden, you know, this is the allowance that natives had been asking for. They were like, get out of the way, let us run our educational systems. Again, let's let us run our health systems too you know we keep talking about these treaty obligations so that that era of community members working together to come up with ideas on how to implement education and how to implement these systems that look like us that was me as a little kid watching the adults kind of gather up and do this and try to figure out you know, what's important to us as Ojibwe people here at Leech Lake, what should be included in, you know, a culture-based education setting that isn't happening, you know, from the American public school setting. And so, you know, I just say that because I have a perspective that, you know, sees possibilities and that believes in in our own local determinations of that Um and so you know we got some culture-based education into some of our education systems throughout the 1980s and 1990s but they were you know they were like small steps in and um, things were really changing really quickly as far as um, our our language bearers and our culture bearers and our communities go Um, and I think too with like roads getting in better to our communities and you know media um reaching our communities even even more soon you know um we made some steps in getting some culture-based education and then I think people maybe relaxed a little bit and uh And then we saw our communities just kind of relax and say, well, we got some classes going. We got some culture classes and some art classes at some high schools. And, you know, maybe we have a few language classes here and there. That sounds pretty cool. But um, then there came this whole American education, like, push throughout the 1990s and throughout the 2000s, you know, to... um, you know, really push this no child left behind stuff. And and our communities were a little too relaxed maybe and just kind of went with it and said, okay, well, we'll just do whatever the State Department of Ed says. We're happy with a Ojibwe art class off here in the edge, you know. Um, However, some of us folks in our community were not satisfied with just having a language class off on the side or after school, you know, and um, said, "This isn't quite what my family or my home looks like. My home and my family is, you know, much more, much more in tune with our ways of being. And and if we're going to be in these compulsory school settings, if we're going to be in these compulsory places, you know, this should look a this should look a lot more like us." I was able to. I didn't even take Ojibwe language class in high school where it was offered um, because at the time, 100,000 years ago, when I was a young lady in high school, it, it was an elective, but it was not a um, foreign language credit um, that we needed to graduate from high school. Um, there was Spanish and German offered in our high school, maybe French, um, but our Ojibwe language classes right here on our own lands didn't qualify for, you know, high school graduation credit. So I, um, you know, took some after school classes, but I didn't even get to take, you know, classes in my language until um, I was college age and, and much older. And I got really interested in that and our college classes could only take us to a certain, like really high beginner level and I said I'm going to I want to learn more so I um, designed a master apprentice language learning program with some elders from our communities and um, I spent a little over a year full time with some Ojibwe language speakers just apprenticing to them And we partnered with some other folks in reservations around us. So young adults um, who wanted to learn the language. Um, We tried to keep it even males and females so we could, you know, we could have some gender balance and, you know, everybody could have the experience. And we operated that for a couple of years. And then um, I was also raising my child in Ojibwe language and then there came the compulsory school age so uh I said well I don't want to send him to public school so we we um heard about we heard about some stuff that these Hawaiians were doing with uh getting their children together with their with their languages and um one of our community members so think of us over here in Minnesota in Ojibwe country way up in northern Minnesota on our reservation saying how should we how can we make this what is it called an immersion school what is it a language it's just all Ojibwe language all the time and somebody said yeah they do it in Hawaii Oh, how do we learn about that and this was in the uh, late 1990s early 2000s And somebody at our planning session, at our roundtable planning session said, call Hawaii. And they pointed to me. And so I was given the task to pick up the phone and say, hello, Hawaii. Like I had to find people. It was just we heard something on the air, something in the wind. This was something that was, you know, happening and going really well for, you know, the Hawaiians. It was just funny. I just laugh at that story where people are like, call Hawaii, you know, and uh, the steps we had to take um, to figure out who and where and what was really happening and how we would even contact our relatives over there, Who the folks who would become our relatives and just making cold calls. Hello, Hawaii? What do we do for language? You know, Um, we've gone So since the early 2000s, we've we've worked together. We've modeled a lot of um, our activities on what is happening there and in other places um, around the country. And we did start a language immersion school. We grew it from a kindergarten through a grade six here at our reservation, here at Leech Lake. Um, I helped with some folks. And uh, then um, through all of that, we just kept coming upon... um, policy barriers you know people kept trying to say what are you doing in your Indian language you can't do that can you and we were like well yeah of course we can this is who we are we're we're self-governing people right but always people poking at us so um I've worked a lot on public policy and we can talk about that in a little bit too. Um, always chipping away at public policies that are trying to stop us from using our languages. Um, I, I look for the ways to open those doors and stuff. And so now we have this national coalition of native American language schools and programs. Um, and we work with folks, really cool folks all over the place. And, um, you know, work on supporting our rights to do this in our languages. Sorry for taking so long. I want to hear from the rest of you, too. Miigwetch. It reminds me, I believe Joshua Fishman
3: said something like, if you don't have a pro-Indigenous language policy, it's probably an anti-Indigenous language policy just by default. And so it was something like that. I'm super paraphrasing. And I just want to say half a day to... Uh, any Chamorro people who are out there, I saw Tinukpungi has post in the chat. And uh, we used to hang out a lot in, in Hilo. Uh, so
6: my um, really teaching at University of Alaska Southeast there in Juneau from 2016 to 2017 put me on the track that I am now. My PhD is in Northwest Coast First Nations Art History as Hune um, shared. I focus a lot on our um, visual and performing arts. And when I was interviewing for the job at UAS, and he can attest to this too, when they asked me if I would be open to teaching my language, I cried. I cried during an academic job interview. How unprofessional. <laughs> but, but it was because, um, man, it just hit me right in, the, in my gut, right in my heart. Um, because every day on the commute from where i lived in vancouver this hour-long commute i was listening to my elders and my my um ipod um i pr- kept some alia with me everywhere um and i i taught it in our dance group um after and before dance practices i do kind of mini lessons um but when i argued for some alia because there's two um you had to have two born languages to get a PhD in art history. And I had already had some alia count as one, and this was before reconciliation. So now universities would be all over this. I said, take my actual assessment. And for my PhD, let me go up three, three, four levels. You know, I, I just want to get better. My language is critically endangered. All of these languages that you have as an option for me are not And they wouldn't, they wouldn't budge on it. So I ended up taking German and it was like a German research class. I felt like, like I had a decoder ring and I was just like decoding because I wasn't saying anything in the language. I was just learning to use it as a researcher, a little waste of time, but it was a part of getting my PhD. And so when they asked that question, my uncle, uh, my beep Arnold Booth was critically ill and he was you know 95 years old at the time and we knew he wasn't going to be around much longer and he was my longest standing some alia teacher and so i i came to uas and immersed myself in khané's classes as i was teaching my first year and um taught my first university level some alia class while um supporting and being a part of the efforts of uh, a grassroots root um based group who's phenomenal doing amazing some alia revitalization for our people the juno language learners who are now just doing all of this they were pioneers of some Alief social media prior to it being a regular thing to see our languages online and um I just came to a place uh, where I did a study across Alaska. I went to Anchorage, um, Ketchikan, Matlakatla, trying to figure out what was, what some of the barriers are in our language revitalization efforts and how I can use my new position at UAS to help us get over any, any hurdles that I, I possibly could um, bring resources together to, to do that. So I put together a um, grammar intensive, because it seemed like many of us were getting to this, this point in our fluency where, you know, we just needed some a boost, essentially, to get further in our uh, composition abilities and our speaking abilities. And I brought over Dr. Margaret Anderson, who is a linguist, and Velma Nelson, who is a fluent speaker, first language fluent speaker, who has relatives in in our community, so she is very familiar with the way that our people in Alaska speak and our people in B.C. speak, and it was life-changing. The entire experience of being at UAS was life-changing because I realized that at that time we had five uh, first language fluent speakers left in my community, and we had about probably about 50 in B.C., and essentially, I made one of the hardest decisions I've made in my life, which was to leave UAS because I needed to take this time to study with our first language fluent speakers while they're still here. So I left Alaska and I came back to British Columbia. And I've I've called this time my postdoc because there was nothing. I looked at everything. I lived in BC way too long to be able to um Apply for a Fulbright or anything that would actually be, you know, a true academic postdoc. And I um, accepted a job as uh, at Naaxa School, which is an independent First Nations K through 12 school at uh, in Kitsilano, where I taught some Alia K through 12 and developed curriculum and trained um, EAs. In our language while working with our first language fluent speakers and developing my material to teach university level some at the University of Northern British Columbia all simultaneously this is before I had my son <laughs> and then, and at that same time I took the model of the Juno language learners which is you know essentially come together once a week have some fish spread on crackers and coffee and visit in some and just go essentially It's a really just beautiful model of collaborative learning where everybody's a learner and everybody's a teacher. And um, I brought that to the two Simshan communities here, Kids and and Kids Class, and I helped to start learners groups. And all all of that all at once. So I just was working these crazy, crazy days. Um, And then I got pregnant, which was a miracle because we didn't think we could have children. So my baby is born of some Aleph language learning efforts, and he um, primarily speaks some just It's just amazing to hear babbling in some Aleph. Which you was my my tutu, my sister who said um, he doesn't babble like my grandkids. And just listen listening to him, like, it sounds nothing like English. And uh, so it's just been this incredible. Very difficult journey because, as I said, um, with all the policies that Canada has put forward and these millions of reconciliation dollars, they have yet to do anything about the border issues. The fact that the Jay Treaty goes one direction. So if I was born in Canada and I was I decided to do this work in the U.S., I could go and be recognized as an American citizen. Give do the gross blood quantum thing, but that's just what Americans are about, right? They're just obsessed with blood quantum. But at least that's an option for those of us that are born on the, in the States, me immigrate like everybody else. And so I am still in immigration limbo. And because the K through 12 job that I had um, doesn't, uh, is not high enough on the ratings for immigration and being an adjunct is not high enough on the ratings for immigration. Um, for me to immigrate here to continue to do the work of learning and teaching and supporting our resurgence. Um, I've had to accept a tenure-track job a, a couple months ago that starts in January at the University of the Fraser Valley. So I'm in a position that many people who teach Indigenous language find themselves of how do I make this sustainable? And that goes to policy changes, Leslie, and Rene knows that as well, because um, you know he t- teaches in the Yukon, and it makes it tough to stay any longer than you know just a, a couple weeks at the most. But these border in- issues, these infringe on our ability to work collaboratively. There are amazing people on both sides that we get into these situations where. We um, hit that Indigenous border wall really hard, and it takes a lot out of us, and many people have walked away because of it. And I really feel that Zoom <laughs> has really helped us overcome a lot. Um, some of the work that I was hoping to do um, for our people in Alaska has happened over Zoom through Quinket and Haida Essential Council. We were able to get sponsorship from them to do our first, another grammar-intensive but one that was focused um, specifically on bringing our elders over here again online um, to our learners in Alaska. And most recently my Raising some Aliach that I talked about is finding a, a home outside of the houses that these songs are sung in. So all of these beautiful simchan homes um, is now part of the Kids and Calum Head Start program. So I've been training them for the past three months and, um, I'm still supporting U- University of Alaska's uh, efforts through the Indigenous Pathways Program. I'm mentoring um, Khukyansk and Gortem Teben, who are both online, I'm meeting with them regularly for the past over a year now. And um, so there's just a lot each of us can do, a lot of sacrifices that it takes to do it. But within our time, those sacrifices are are nothing compared to the long term sacrifice that would be you know, the things that would be lost within um, our languages if we didn't do this work. So, I ask it, some for everyone and your incredibly inspiring efforts.
3: Something's gonna happen, folks. Stick around for the exciting conclusion of this wonderful conversation with incredible human beings. We were blessed to have them with us. we got about a half an hour to go after the ad break. But if you stick around, there's more decolonial secrets. Gonna cheesh, we'll be right back. Once I thought about a million birds all around the world, sharing their songs and thinking about the way they've lived and they're gonna live this is the way, ye'owah, ye'kugach to see, wuchin
0: Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge.
2: Hurry to smileactives.com/slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.
7: Um so I there's kind of two areas that I um thinking about the question of my experience in language realization. And there's I'm just thinking like dovetailing into those policy pieces. Um so one of the things that I do is I'm the tribal liaison for Alaska's department of education and early development. And so I spend, um, quite a bit of time in the K-12 Western K-12 arena and talking with tribes and native NGOs, um, all over the state and all over the U S on, uh, language and culture. And they're, they're fairly inseparable. And, um, so that's, that's one of the things that focusing energy on, um, I, as with anything policy-based, um, it's one of the things I was reflecting last night. We had a, a, wrapped up a five-year language project that I've been working with my tribe, um, here at the end of September. And we had a fire up last night and just kind of celebrated some of our, um, some of our c- celebrations because the COVID hit during the, the middle of it. So it's like, we should, we should do something outside. And, um, it, so we had, we were just talking, I was thinking about one of the things that honey had said um, previously in our conversations or at a conference, um, and just like keep the politics out of language revitalization or language work. And policy inherently has this po- the politics woven into it, and it's one of the ways that education has been weaponized against our languages. And so, just it's one of those things that I, that I um, sometimes I struggle with, like how much energy goes into policy, how much energy goes into the language work itself. And so, um, two of the things that that are kind of like policy based that I've been working on um, with the department and our and partners, um, one of them were, it came out this morning, and it's the Cook Inlet Tribal Council is working to develop um, an analysis and recommendation on Native education models for Alaska. And so there's um, looking at what are those Native education models and having support to do that kind of work to where it's um, looking at policy pieces, but rooted in what do the communities need? versus a western government agency saying here's what you should do and so that's been part of the what 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 do we do no partnerships ever perfect we always could be doing other and different things but like thinking about what are those targeted ways that we get the policy matters that are critical up to the levels that need to be discussed to make those policy shifts so that's one of those things that i'm pretty excited about that's like it's going to be starting here um has like today. Um, The other is uh, the state education, state tribal education compacting, which is not a new idea. Um, It's been around for a long time, the idea, but um, in, I think it was July, um, that was where the department is partnering with AFN to scope out what compacting might look like in Alaska. Um, So that's again, no partnerships, perfect, but it's definitely a big step to be able to have an entity really focus on it. Um, Part of some of the work I've been doing with the department um, and with the state board has a subcommittee on tribal compacting. Um, So there's these pieces about building capacity within the policy world um, that help get rid of or help lessen the barrier or make them shorter so that we can actually climb through or over those. Um, So that's one one of the things that I think about with the language work. The other thing that I've been that I do um, for my personal like Danina language work is uh, we've done strategic planning within our community and figuring out what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses, what do we have, what don't we have, and what's possible in our ling- linguistic reality. Because it'd be great, like we all we want conversational. It's like, well, we don't have two speakers in the same room. We don't have two speakers that have connectivity to talk. So doing an immersive conversation thing, I can't raise the dead. So that's one of the, like, n- n- we just don't go there. Um, we try to. And so one of the ways that we developed um, is a conver- uh, creating stories where, where people are talking to each other. So we're creating conversation from one first language speaker who we have a, a Dena'ina family. It's a fictitious Dena'ina family. And Annie talks to her, tita, she, her grandma, she talks to her brother, the, all these things that our first language speaker has done as a child, we have a way for her to be creative in storytelling in a denial way. So we're not just taking books and translating them. Um, the other thing, like, so we're focusing quite a bit on literacy. So this is like one of those things, like we have our, our first baby board book, um, which I'm pretty excited about. So it's like, we have gone through and, It's like, what do we call our letters? Because we have letters in Den that we don't have in English. And it's like, what do you call them? And so we're going through those kind of like basic steps of literacy. Um, And that's just kind of, that's the thing that we're focusing on. Um, And then thinking about access. And again, we're we're focusing on print materials. So we have like little pocket dictionary that's coming out. Um, this, This is the proof. So like within the next year, we'll have thousands of these floating around. So it's just like, that's kind of the, the immediate focus pieces for me and the communities that I work in the policy community, the Dené language community, um, and yeah, I, I just appreciate the time and, and being able to hear other people share their stories.
3: Chenan, so
7: and Roy,
8: yeah. So uh, my experiences and current focuses. I I, I started off as a learner, uh, second language learner of Inuktitut at the university. Um, Dropped out of school for a while, Uh, early in my master's program. and lived for uh, seven months in Kotzebue. And for part of that time, I worked as a substitute teacher in the high school. Well, uh, excuse me, K K through 12. And uh, so I got to see, interestingly, um, what was the model. I'll describe it as the prototypical model there, which was the Inupiat granny would come to each classroom, pushing her cart, and she'd have 15 minutes a day and she had pictures of animals and they talked in english about well what's our name for this animal and they did coloring and they would write it out and they would say it um which is a good way to learn words um but as i i, I started to re- had the beginnings of glimmers of but that's not going to lead to c- conversational ability um a uh, few few years later, I was living in Nome. Uh, I had finished uh, my anthro degrees and also a bachelor's in uh, Inupiaq, and uh, I was asked by the community college if I would team teach a conversational Inupiaq class. And I I said no. Uh, uh, for one, the dialect differences are huge. Uh, they're they're like between English in England and Scots in Southern Scotland. It's like, yeah, there may be the same language, but you won't understand the other person if you were not familiar with it. Um, And the other thing is, I I had realized that I I needed something different. And I encountered a uh, a short article uh, regarding a communicative language approach, TPR. And so I went back to the community college uh, president, back when we had community colleges in Alaska, uh, and said, if, if you can help me find an Inupiaq speaking elder, uh, who would be willing to try something new, I would love to try team teaching. And that's what I did, uh, first with Margaret Sigena, uh, and then later with uh, Irene Armstrong. And I, I believe that was the first use of TPR to teach an Alaska Native language, uh, starting in uh, spring of 82. Uh, and the students loved it, and so we took it on the road, and we did some in-services for some school districts, And we started doing demos at the Bilingual Multicultural Education Conference uh, in in Anchorage. Uh, So that's one of the big things for me then was, okay. we need to have language teaching methods that use that communicate in order to teach people how to communicate. Because for me, anyway, that's the bottom line. There's other uses for language, too. But one is to communicate. Uh, And it it turns out humans cannot learn to communicate uh, except through communicating. Uh, So there's that. Uh, I uh, was also involved later uh, in the late 80s and early 90s in Bethel with getting uh, a Yupik Immersion School uh, going, uh, which is now uh, named in honor of the, the original lead teacher who's still there. Uh, she's been teaching uh, kindergarten uh, for over 50 years now in Bethel, Ayap Lottie Jones. And that's still a fantastic way to do it to get new speakers. Uh, I, I got very interested in sociolinguistic aspects because my my uh, I have degrees in anthropology, and I realized it's not just enough to learn how to speak a language, but the the, the social factors going on can be even more powerful. And uh, that's what sent me down to UC Berkeley, uh, city with people um, there, um, like like Leanne Hinton. Um, Who's done wonderful? Still, still is uh, doing uh, amazing things. And with John Gumpertz, he, to some extent, but also his students, have done a lot with trying to figure out so- sociolinguistically what's going on when a community, as a community, is losing its language and replacing it with something else. Uh, and that got me, and that's where I learned about language policy and planning. So, so these are the things that I've been working with. I'm still involved uh, in one way or another with all of these: language teaching methods, curriculum design. Uh, what needs to be done to get immersion schools doing, going, and uh, also very excited with uh, uh, the, the master apprentice or miss mentor apprentice approach. For me, one of the big concerns is, depending on the s- situation of the language community, certain things will be brilliant first moves and others will be impossible. So uh, you know, lots of people say, hey, let's have an immersion school, but we have no fluent speakers. So then that's not where you start. You, you need to start on another track. Uh, there's things that require. So some things have to come first. So uh, the master apprentice approach is, is brilliant. Uh, in a way, it's absolutely nothing new. Uh, people have been doing that for thousands of years. Uh, you move into a new community and you live with someone who speaks that language to you. <laughs> so uh, it's fun to de- discover these again. Um, and th- those are the things that, uh, I think of that I work, uh, work with and, uh, want to see more of goodness cheese. Goodness cheese.
3: So in our kind of last 20 minutes here, and I just want to say like, I, I don't want you folks to feel too rushed. I know we're, we're just scratching the surface, but we'll have options of continuing this conversation. There's lots of ways we could do that. We could do part two. Uh, I'd be happy to do individual interviews. Uh, I'm making a podcast on language revitalization that I think I'm gonna call the tongue unbroken uh, so that we can have sort of these, uh, cause I always feel like we're running out of time even just to do the stuff and just to sit together. So I really wanna thank you each for sharing your time with us. The, the next topic, and it doesn't matter if we don't get to all four, I was just trying to think of things that we could just sort of move through. But just sharing some ideas. What have been the most effective strategies in language revitalization? And we'll turn it back over to Larry. Do I have,
4: or do we have, time to think about that in Hawaii? <laughs> um, but you know, uh, basically, if I, I overlooked this because it's been going on uh since uh, you know we've had what is this? Our twenty-third uh, high school graduation in uh, Hawaiian language uh, education, Hawaiian medium education. In other words, the uh, cha- the the student from preschool or maybe from kindergarten, age five, all the way up to gradu- high school, has graduated. Now we have had our. Uh, we're looking forward to our twenty-third graduation. We just uh, celebrated 20 years of establishing a. I uh, guess when we uh, establishing a K to uh, what is that sixth grade? Because uh, when we started, you know, we were starting. We had just uh, two little sites, and one site had maybe about seven uh, children to start that start the site off. The other one had maybe about the same, maybe a little more, 11, twelve, but just from that, um, I call it the yeast, and then the rest of the families that came in to join in this yeast, uh, just, uh, you know, I'm getting into baking now. <laughs> but uh, again, as I'm hearing uh, from Leslie and others, the policy only Hawaiian, no English, and that on our uh, in our education, we do not well, we had to, at the beginning, translate what was available, but we do not want to just translate a uh, Western uh, system of education. Oh, however, the um, integrity of education is great because we need to live our language uh, for today and for tomorrow. Therefore, there are so many new things that we have to catch up with, just I'm talking just language-wise. And how do we deal with this uh, connection to a, a global world at the same time holding on to our little spot in the in the wider world as our own spot? And therefore, um, always being proud and and being strong and stronger for those kinds of concepts because we can be easily swallowed up. And so I think uh, that kind of a balance because it's just not one way only it's a being a part of everything at the same time which is very very big challenging job but the main the main part is to maintain a philosophy of Hawaiian education meeting the standards of what we are uh, encountering in the the uh, standards of you know of uh, common education uh, education throughout the world, I guess. So that um, we are seeing that our language can, can thrive and live for today and tomorrow as well. And so as, as generations seem to move along, you know, 20 years go by very quickly for an age of a child. And how much of that um, connection can we give uh, provide while we've already been separated uh, to begin with from our strong foundations of traditional language and culture. So, of course, here in Hawaii, as we're seeing the last of our native speakers, less than 30, uh, We our documentation has become very, very crucial, so I hope you, we are all uh uh, preserving our languages in that way. I mean, we have now digitization and and that is just marvelous uh, what we're doing now with Zoom. So all of that kind of work and uh, and the challenge to uh, bring this forward in the new technology, our uh, new uh, the curriculum that can be always revamped, you know, uh, not always the same. It's going to revamp and change, but in this change, sticking to uh, our foundational. Uh, so every year we have our, uh, our punana has as a, uh, what do you call it, Ahanu uh Always, um, what is the mission? What is the mission? And the mission is to remind us this year with Pai Pai Ho which is set up the stones for a new foundation because our stones from the past have been kind of crumbled away, but we need to rebuild that. But when we rebuild, we're rebuilding it upon our solid foundations, uh, tradi- our, our traditional knowledge and language, but for a new a uh, a new, a new uh, home, a new uh, house to live in. So these are some of the kinds of, uh, I guess you call them uh, initiatives, not initiatives, but just standard um, philosophies that we are constantly reminding ourselves to do in our language, our way of seeing the world, and to participate in a healthy way with the rest of the world, and ourselves first, being healthy so that we can participate in that
3: way. kai okay. Mahalo. Leslie.
5: It's so good when we get together and visit like this and like the things I've been hearing, you know, the themes, even just from a little bit tonight, you know, are like capacity building and policy inclusion, which sound really clinical and really, you know, it can sound, um, you know, really kind of outside of our communities in some ways, um, you know, but really that's where we're at too what has been um, really effective for us is recognizing that there are multiple approaches we need to take and that 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 we need a lot of community members participating in language revitalization um, for a while it was you know it was like oh hey focus on the kids kids in school. And folks were like, well, what about their parents? What about, you know, the real common sense kind of questions? When the kids go home from school, who are they speaking the language with? You know, so really, you know, engaging that parent age generation and saying, what can we do to support you in language learning? That's why I like the master apprentice type, Um, you know, really, really intensive, you know, one, two, three thousand hours of, you know really intensive instructional time dedicated towards that, um, you know, regular ongoing um, classes and learning spaces in in real life contemporary situations that are available to even the parent age generations in our communities is really important. Um, And so building that capacity just in people who know how to speak our languages in real life everyday settings and it sounds so common sense but it takes a lot to get there right so building the movement and the campaigns around that and then also ensuring that we're building the policies to support that language we have to build up personal policies in our homes that support uh, language Rich environment um, for me it's an Ojibwe language rich environment I raised my son in Ojibwe he was one of the first kids in about fifty years who spoke our language as his first language um, there was literally like a handful of people out of our you know out of our tribe here at Leech Lake who had who had spoken our language from childhood and maintained it um, so really saying I'm going to intently do this, you know, and our family supporting that. Um, Now we have another new Ojibwe language speaker in our community. Um, And he's going to be able to give that to his kids whenever he gets around to having them, but also public policy. Making sure that we are the folks writing the policy. We're not just trying to carve ourselves into and distort and contort ourselves into something that doesn't make sense to us. For too long, Native folks all over the place have been ignored or erased in the policy arena and said, you know, just do what we tell you, kind of thing. But where we write our own policies and say, these are our priorities. We are going to, you know, from our own local cultural perspective, this makes sense. We understand our excellence, our ways of knowing and being, um, and we're going to uphold those standards. In a lot of places, they probably exceed what the state policies, you know, require. Um, And so making sure that our community members are there and articulating that and saying these are... The pieces that we're going to carry forward, and you know, making sure that the conditions exist to um, put those into place and to continue to assert those policies. Sheesh, good. Some Shodam Newsom.
6: Oh, Shodam is such an inspiring panel. Um, I've just been. I teach some Aliyah at um, over the past four years at every level of human development. Um, with our uh, K through 12 school and now doing this work in the Head Start, but then having my own baby and learning from, you know, the very beginning, what language acquisition looks like. And I think that um, students um, get really hung up on what, when they're becoming teachers, what methods that they're interested in and they want to use. And I, my biggest suggestion to them is, to get to know your students first um, because there's so many things that just won't it, there's no i haven't seen uh, approaches that work across the board for every different type of learner and to know as many as you can but not feel obligated to feel like you have to commit to i'm just going to use the Gray Morning method i'm just going to use where are your keys or tpr or tprs and uh, and all of that, I never in my, because I'm trained as a dancer in our traditional ways, and I I always knew our songs through dance, never thought I would sing. And I just, you know, I still get really soft, really embarrassed when I have to solo sing to teach my nursery rhymes. But um, people find that as a, a good monomic device. Adults find it as a really gentle um, learning Device that makes them giggle, you know. Um, but they find themselves singing through to remember what the name of clothes are, to remember how to say "wash your hands" and some other. So, one thing that's been really um, that I've wondered about, and I want to do more work on, uh, because of things I've run into, adult learners. What I love about learn teaching little ones that I realized right away after leaving UAS and going right into a K through 12 school is that you just get right to some alley-off. you just get right to the language, you don't have to create time and space within a classroom environment to talk about the traumas of our colonization, to talk about the traumas of our language loss and how the reclamation process brings out in people who have experienced and um, whether it's directly or through intergenerational on trauma, being have having gone through abuse and all all manifestations, um, through because of speaking our language, and what I felt like in my very first university class, because I had a boarding school survivor in that class who shared with us for the first time aloud, he said the person's name who who had um, abused him in our community, in our village. And I thought, I need to go back to school for counseling. I need to go back to school. Like, I felt like I don't have the tools for this. I need to find the tools. And so I've been really interested, and I would love if anyone has any resources on learning about trauma-informed approaches to Indigenous language teaching. Because I've tried to create assignments I know it sounds so like the worst thing you could say I've tried to create an assignment around it but I've tried to create exercises I should say that give give people space um, within their own uh, I give a, a learning journal that they set their goals for the week that they if there are words in the language I bring up experiences positive and negative that they want to remember when they go back and think about their learning journey But I just really feel like we all need more. And especially in Canada, as we go through this process uh, of reconciliation, which the majority of the time is just re-traumatizing those that have suffered the worst, that we need tools that we determine are useful for us in this process of resurgence and reclamation,
7: Alex, Joe, um, I think that creating safe space is the one of the most effective things um, that I've experienced, and um, is really important to maintain. And that can be physical safe space. It can be emotional safe space. It like in a learning environment all those different factors that come into it and i think that's one of the pieces um, when going through and kind of like strategic planning what what are your revitalization goals Um, is are you working with elders are you working with kids are you working with family are you looking with just adults just like going through because safety for someone who's gone through all of those life experiences to be one of the last people on earth who speaks a language safety for them might look different than safety for a five-year-old. Um, and when you put those two together, that also creates a different kind of environment that just really taking the time to be in, in tune and go slow enough on those kinds of parts and give the time that it takes to figure that out. Um, and the, the, that bringing in and expanding um, the work is another form of like considering safety for the workers who are doing that. So I, the analogy that I, I think about is when you have a sphere that's small, you have this volume surface area ratio that's highly efficient for a circle. But if it's a flat thing, when you when you draw a bigger circle, it grows a, a little bit. It's still bigger on the outside than it was on the inside before. When you make that into three-dimensional space and then you grow by a little the amount of volume that that increases is huge, but you don't see it because the surface area is still super efficient. And each time you increase your radius, the amount of work that it takes that core to do in order to have it grow, it puts a lot of pressure and strain. So those those core movers in whatever revitalization work is being done, they might have different support or safety needs to where their lives don't get broken apart completely, trying to keep things going. And so I, th- I think that's one of the really effective strategies is to be very honest about what that looks like. Um, we have, that's a, being very direct with it. I talked to the, my elders and the different people that we work with, like, does this make everyone feel safe? In these kinds of questions, in these kinds of environments, when we're doing a class, does, if, if we don't feel comfortable, if, if we don't have that support, what does support look like for us as instructors? And then we have those conversations with the students because it's not just about us as instructors. And so that we're able to understand how to keep that classroom environment and that learning to happen in a good way. And I think it goes with the learning, it goes with the teaching and the strategic planning, whatever method, whatever strategies you come up with and your phases and your pillars and all the different things that you can do for strategic planning. If it doesn't fundamentally have that protective, safe quality, um, it won't be as successful in the long run. So that's just, I think, the most effective thing for me, Shanann.
3: Shanann. Well, I know... You're hanging out with wonderful people when it feels like you just don't have enough time. So here we are at the wrap-up phase, but, uh, we'll figure out a way to have more discussions on this. I really, really, uh, you uh, I really just love you all and I'm so thankful we we were uh, giving each other respect and just sort of sometimes we lift each other up because the work is hard. We're just out there in the mud all day you know doing this doing this work and and making these differences. So the way I think we'll close it is uh, if you could tell me in a sentence, What do you think this future looks like, in terms of this balance between our dreams and the reality that we're going to create? What do you think this looks like? So we'll go in the same order. And then we'll have closing remarks from Ronaldo Cadiente Brown, uh, from UAS. And then we'll, we'll shut the zoom down. And thank you, zoom for not kicking me off at all today. Uh, I got shut down four times this morning. It was uh, interesting. To be frozen in mid-story mid-sentence and, and whatever so uh mahalo nui cheese how are larry
4: okay well see that's another big question but uh i think uh you know uh gaining off op- how should i say Being very optimistic here in hawaii about uh having less than maybe 30 uh children of uh, speaking, native speaking children under the age of 17, she back in, this is in the 80s, 1980s, and now having, like, you know, right now, this very moment in school, oh, about 3,500 3, children in uh, Hawaiian merchant schools or Hawaiian medium schools, and and uh, building up uh, the account again of newborn, newly raised, uh, native-speaking children from home and having a uh, system set set up for them, educational system, to gain even stronger strength in our language and cultural identity. is just wonderful. So very optimistic for us. Uh, It takes a lot of teamwork, uh, maintaining to your vision, and uh, going for it. And it sounds pretty easy, but I know if, as you're, we're talking about it, there are challenges, but all of those challenges uh, need to be met, and it can be, it can be. So, oh meaning, go forward, continue forward. Mahalo Anui loa. Thank you for this opportunity, An Wesley and Leslie uh, and Tinak. I see Tinak over there too. Mahalo Anui for this gathering. Aloha.
5: Hi. Right. Aloha. Mahala. Me ni and you know, if we look at the what does the future look like for language revitalization um for us Ojibwe's and maybe for a lot of other folks when we whatever we say in our language is going to come to be. So we're very um we're also very careful and very strategic with the things that we say. But what I said was that um, into the future, you know, we're going to be carrying, we're going to be making our sound. And that that was uh, inclusive, eh, Um, that we are going to do this, that this is going to live, um, that we will find ways to intently put our languages, you know, keep them on our land and in our lives, whether through, um, you know, through our very intent actions. Me go yo. Me go edge listening to Meginoasa. Thanks for uh, listening and visiting. Hello, the news.
6: I'm go when. Um. Kani. Um. Look, I got to know the um. Say get when I'm. Uh. Say get when. Uh thank you sunae for this um, meeting today uh i'm going to some you all for your words um local god this is really important work and um get i just feel our our the pride of our ancestors as we're we're talking um, to each other from all of these different experiences and and language groups that in many ways have always been um, connected um, through our ancient trade routes. And so now we have this ancient trade route called Zoom. And um, in terms of positivity for our language revitalization efforts. Um, I'm working with one of our elders online by the name of, uh, Shugaina, um, who is a tiza for, for many of us, um, online here and to see what they have experienced, what she has experienced and other, um, some Aleph teachers her age have experienced in terms of there being very little interest when she started, um, and very little resources, um, to um, having to walk away um, due to politics. Um, you know, my my beep, um, Arnold Booth, all of his resources burned down at one time, burned, his office caught on fire. We went back to it. And I just feel that that this path that our ancestors have put us on, that when it's truly our, our calling, our goal, that even if we have to go away, um, we come back and that Shugaina and having these conversations with her about it, she told me that have faith that if you don't do this work if you don't get to something within our sommelier revitalization, someone else will and I'm seeing it and it's it's uh, it's just gorgeous to see i um, lifting up Teben and Hukyunsk, and I was in a I was a mentor this year, so I had an apprentice through First People's Cultural Council. My apprentice Ocean, George Lynn, is doing incredible work, and so many of our people are 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 taking a stand and doing doing. Um, they are uh, sharing their gifts with us, and everybody has different gifts to bring to our language revitalization in all areas. So I know there's a ton, ton of students online and students are always on my goal. So just know that your gifts are precious and they're different than everybody else's and keep bringing your gifts.
7: Thanks. Joe? I would say, uh, which is our children will be our teachers with good thoughts and intentions. Um, so that's kind of my, what the future looks like. Man, you are all such sacred,
3: wonderful people. Rinalda?
1: I appreciate so much uh, the, this gathering, and I can't tell you how enriching it is and how precious each of you are for the work that you're carrying. And I recognize that it's a, a, a very heavy load. Um, my think uh, name that I was born, um, given at birth, is Antecha'at, and my, the other name I'm privileged to carry, Khunach uh, from Kuich in, in um, Angoon, And I, I bring that forward in that my, my mother Jigaytla, uh, and she also carries the name Junachla, is uh, one of those um, individuals who had that precious um, life of uh, the Tlingit language as her, her first language and the challenges that she faced. And I would venture to say that it was her knowledge of the language and her persistence that um, carried her forward. She didn't begin to um, talk more fully about her experiences until um, I was studying the language. And this was over 20 years ago. And slowly that door opened um, towards some healing um, Um, and um, to the point that also she was stepping into classrooms and and teaching. The healing that she experienced um, most significantly I bared witness to, and it came from a 10-year-old girl who was listening to her telling a story and her life story at a camp, a culture camp. And this little girl went to her and said, I apologize for my people for what happened to you and she gave my mother a, a, a hug and my mother gave her a bear hug back from that moment on um, after her tears that's when she, her her mind shifted to how how um, she could embrace a different view of languages today what i heard from the sustained um, panel is that more more than just the words and the vocabulary is that your work is capturing um, the intelligence, the grace, the humor, the relationship and kinships, community and belonging. You're capturing the historical record of our people. You're capturing our geographic significance, the resources that our, our ancestors had stewardship over, and importantly you're capturing heart and growth and healing and for that I I can't help but um, be indebted to each of you for what you're bringing forward um, as precious knowledge to share with others so generously that future does have a it sounds like a future of technology um, and innovation and um I think the kick out that you experienced this morning was Raven playing with you after telling his story. So I just want to say, um, and aloha uh, for our, our dear people. And and please keep up the, the uh, this most important work and know that um, there are so many cheering you on and and in awe of each of you. So with that, I will close and then I'll for the opportunity to, to speak.
3: Yewe yande shak wataan ayayata Taat yinye jachani Kwanach at ayayata Kwanachish away Hachaydi sa aachay Dekat yuon Achalcheits ayayalcheitl Ijiyayn qatiy. Thanks for checking us out, folks. That is how this one's going to wrap. 100 minutes of podcasts. It is late in the night, and I am ready for bed. This has been The Tongue Unbroken, produced by Daniel Goodman and Renee Lance Twitchell. Check out other podcasts with the Next Up Initiative, Black Fat Femme, Beauty Translated, Partition, Gunnath cheesh Anna Hosnier, Joelle Monique, Yesenia Medea, Con nakhoe yi See you next time.